0: This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. You can go to YouTube and just uh, type in three words, Spirit Matters Talk. Uh, A couple of things before we start today. Uh, Please subscribe. Whether you're listening as a podcast or YouTube channel, it's a little red button. You can click and subscribe. And I want to thank those people that have contributed to help keep us on the air. We are not a nonprofit, but you can support us by contributing. And that information is all found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Very excited to have back on our show today uh, Amanda Lucia. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California in Riverside and the author of Reflections of Ama Devotees in a Global Embrace. Uh, we went into that uh, in detail last interview this time, her new book, and I'm going to hold it up, White Utopias, which I stayed up hold last, last it night it reading, and uh, subtitled The Religious Ecstasy of Transformational Festivals. Fascinating yeah. stuff, and something I know most of our listeners uh, will be interested in. So thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today, Amanda.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for being here, and thanks for allowing me to be present with you. I appreciate it.
2: Um, we should apologize to the viewers that I had uh, computer problems, and so uh, the the video may not my video may not be as clear. But as long as you hear me, we're fine. Uh, Amanda, this uh, topic that of your new book, uh, which is published by what University of California Press? Yeah. Um, Tell us what got you interested in this subject and uh, how you went about your research.
1: Well, uh, thanks for that. Certainly, um, you know, what's interesting about this book is I started off without really the intention to have the book go in the direction that it did. Um, And it started off because I moved here to Southern California and I had probably recently read Phil's book, right? American Veda, talking about all of the richness of the bhakti scene and in Southern California, US more generally, but particularly here. And I went out to Bhakti Fest in the desert. And with the the first project that I worked on with Ama devotees, I had already had a lot of experience with um, non-Indian or primarily uh, white New Age people. Uh, uh, devotees, but then here I found that the field was um, not as comprised of kind of people who had imagined themselves who have made a life change. I don't like to use the word conversion necessarily, but somebody who had only kind of recently gotten into the scene, whereas here I found um, there were some fairly deep roots to uh, non-Indians who were interested and in following and bhaktas and devotees of um, their own yogic practice, their own religious practice. And I wanted to know more about those communities, what they were doing, how they were founded, how they identified themselves and understood themselves in relationship to South Asian traditions, South Asian religious traditions. And the book kind of took off from there, trying to understand what they thought they were doing, how they imagined themselves, and then also why they were calling from such a specific demographic community, um, primarily educated, often urban dwelling, often at least um, I saw the, the wealth broken up a little bit. So we can talk more about that if we want, but um, oftentimes from either kind of lineage wealth or well, you know, doing well themselves. They weren't worried about their their, their paychecks every month necessarily. Um, and then predominantly white Uh, and it was so interesting to me because in some other places of the United States it's a little bit less stark because those populations or those states might be uh, more predominantly white but here in California where it's only 37 percent white it's very rare actually to go into a fully white space even the country clubs are not fully white or Mm -hmm. the you know places you might imagine to be kind of white spaces Mm -hmm. are not usually homogeneously white Um, but some of these festivals were um, not only, but, you know, uh, some, as I speak in the book, you know, around 77 or 80% white, all the way up to what I would say is, you know, almost homogeneously white, 95 to 100% white space.
0: I'm, I'm curious, uh, when you uh, g- came to, uh, when, you, when you started researching for your book, I'm sure you had many preconceived uh, notions about what you would find and uh, uh, what you would write about. What, what came up in your research, uh, if anything, that surprised you?
1: Well, I kind of, um, I had been aware of scholarly trends in the field that identified um, kind of the root of these scenes, for lack of a better word, as uh, superficial, as capitalistic, as um, intentionally harmful, right? There's a lot of kind of negative talk about uh, the new age scene in general um, in academia, but then also I think among the general populace, when you say like even this phrase like the woo woo people, right? They're they're kind of a, the butt of a joke sometimes. Um, and I was always kind of working in contra contrast to that. Um, misrepresentation is how I see it. Um, and and then I think that was really my hunch going in the field. And then it was really solidified by the people I met who were in fact, very earnest, very serious, for the most part, very dedicated, very much searching for alternative life ways and life worlds um, in resistance to uh, what they, what they saw as kind of the world as it exists around us. I think there's a really, one of the things I try to highlight in the book is that there's a really heavy critique at the center of a lot of these turns to the other or turns toward the exotic. Um, And I think that critique, we can argue about whether it is actualized, manifested, you know, um, useful, put into practice, political, we can argue about what that critique is and whether it's effective, but it's certainly there. I think it's most definitely there. And people are looking Mm -hmm. to um, alternative life ways to to become different and to shape different worlds. And so I I, I felt like that was um, kind of my hunch, but then really reinforced by the field.
2: Mm -hmm. I'm glad you said that, Amanda, because in in my experience, the um, people that are dismissed often as uh, dilettantes or uh, woo-woo types, the spiritual but not religious cohort in general. I I think it's not taken seriously enough. Speaking of which, um, you focus on that SBNR, spiritual but not religious, population who attends these festivals. Um, I'm curious if you've looked at the data, and the, the, the data I've seen seems to indicate this fast-growing category of people who are unaffiliated with any uh, religious or tradition, the nuns. And it's not clear to me what percentage of those people are spiritual but not religious, and and as opposed to just totally uh, disconnected from anything spiritual. Do you have a sense of that?
1: Yeah, I, th- I appreciate that comment, you know, and those two categories are oftentimes conflated, right, yeah. the spiritual but not religious and the nuns, and I'm sure I do a bit of that as well, unwittingly. Um, the nuns, of course, N-O-N-E-S, comes from the Pew Forum, uh, the census, right, when asked what religion are you, the people who check the box, none. Um, spiritual but not religious is a analytical category, but it's also something that I found that a lot of people self-identify as um, in these fields. And I think one of the differences is that I found coming up again and again in my inter- interviews was just how often the people who identify as spiritual but not religious are in fact anti-religious. And um, mm-hmm. they're kind of sometimes very aggressively anti-religious. They think religion mm-hmm. has created a lot of problems in our world um, that it is a source of corruption and greed and abuse and um, sometimes there's a conflation their critique between religion and christianity i would say i was really surprised at that how often religion i felt like was a almost like a stand in term for christianity or for the catholic church oftentimes um people who had suffered and felt that they had suffered in a uh, very uh, oppressive, as they viewed it, upbringings, religious upbringings. Um, so, could I up...
0: just inter- I want to ask uh, the people that were um, against religion strongly, uh, but spiritual, but not religious, were, were they did they <clears throat> most of those people categorize themselves as being atheist or not?
1: No, they would say spiritual. I would say that's where I would get that term spiritual, but not mm-hmm. religious. So they would kind of tell me stories of how religion had created harm in their life and then how they were exploring in what tended to be non-Christian, I would say religious fields, but they thought spiritual fields, um, whether it be like guru devotion or ritualism or, or um, meditation or, or whatever kind of other form that they were looking through. Um, for inspiration, and I think that is a distinctive feature of the SBNR community, as opposed to the people who are none, who might identify as none or I write that on the census, who might just kind of have an ambivalent or and you know they don't tend to think too much or care too much about religion. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that might be one distinction.
2: Mm-hmm. But is there, um, in, in terms of data? Is Are there any uh, studies that have uh, a reliable indication of the numbers of SBNRs as opposed to the number of nuns?
1: Not to my knowledge. No, I think that the, the census data is gathered according to nuns and we can have figures for how those nuns are on the rise. You know, I think yeah. that's the um, headline of uh, what was it? I don't want to miss name, but I think it's 2009 Pew Forum, right? Nuns on the Rise. Um, but then SBNR, I think in that, you could look more closely at the Pew uh, uh, Forum on Nuns, and they have it broken down into spiritual, agnostic, atheistic. So get into those weeds there, and it'll tell you. Okay. Uh,
0: in, in your book, you talk about um, these events, the, these uh Festivals, Burning Man, Lightning in a Bottle, Bhakti Fest, Wonderlust, And uh, I think any of us that have uh, attended any of those or any any festivals like those, they're predominantly white, just like yoga classes are predominantly white. When I go to any spiritual group, uh, it's predominantly white. But I have to say, uh, a few years ago, I was in Southern California, and I went to a Hare Krishna center to, um, they have a festival, a feast, uh, one day, I don't think it was a, on a Sunday night and I'll I'll do that. there. Their food is very good and it's very friendly. <laughs> I like the I like the feeling there. People are very good. And I went and and I went a few times and it was predominantly Indian, not white. And and I was really surprised. And then I thought to myself, why should I was, it, I was shocked that I was surprised? Why should I be surprised? <laughs> this, this is, you know, it, this is the tradition. And there were many in, Indians in that area. Is that becoming more the case, or is that an isolated incident? Because I haven't experienced that a lot, uh, but at, at the Hare Krishna temple and uh, at this particular location, uh, there was a very strong uh, Indian population. And when I spoke to the, uh, I, I, they didn't represent the whole group, but I spoke to a few uh, Indian Amer- uh, 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 Indians that were there. Uh, it was, uh, they saw it as a, uh, a bhakti temple, And didn't think of it so much as a Hare Krishna temple, like most of, like I would have. Uh, And they had a a, a sort of a different perception of it, but they were very active there. And it was a lot of fun and it was great. And it was much more diverse than I had experienced. Is that a trend or is that just an isolated incident?
1: Yeah, I think that's honestly what sparked my interest was because working in the Amma community, it was certainly (laughs) at least half South Asian everywhere I went. Um, if not more, sometimes. Even
0: throughout the U.S.?
1: Yeah, even in the U.S. I mean, of course, there's some places that were whiter than others, but mostly due to the demographic of that particular place. Um, But if you went to uh, Detroit or Toronto or Boston or Chicago, any of those cities, there was a pretty significant South Asian population that would come to see Amma. And the Hare Krishnas, in fact, you know, this is a kind of longer story that we can't get into, have turned toward, and the the South Asian community and South Asians in diaspora have turned toward the Hare Krishnas um, as a kind of home temple in some sense, you know, even since the, I would say since the the 90s, 2000s, when some of the scandals broke with the Hare Krishnas, they kind of lost a lot of their um, non-Indian populations, right as kind of diaspora Hindu, Hindu communities were booming and Indian Hindus turned toward them. So, uh, Nicole uh, Karapanagiotis, I think, I hope I said her last name right, just wrote a book called Branding Bhakti. Um, Claire Robeson, some of the other people who have been working on the Hare Krishnas for a long time have talked a lot about the kind of South Asian turn in the Hare Krishnas, um, both in India as well as in, in other places outside of India.
0: I also would uh, I'm here in Fairfield, Iowa where, where Maharishi University is and I was on the faculty there years ago. And right now, I mean, the university, the undergraduate and graduate population is predominantly non-white, a lot of um, Africa, different areas of Asia, a lot of Indian and Chinese. And uh, so uh, interesting, you know, uh, some of those students may have come specifically for spiritual reasons. Some of them may have come because they have programs in computer science and accounting uh, that are very much job related, but uh, it has become way more diverse than it was, say, in the 70s and 80s when it was, uh, you know, 90 percent, 95 percent white.
2: But I don't think that uh, pertains to uh, Amanda's research, Dennis, because they're international recruits to colleges. Not,
0: not, not entirely. Amongst the undergraduate population, there's a lot of non-white who okay. are from the United States. Yeah. With the graduate I mean... students, I would say yes. Yeah.
1: That's what makes it so interesting, I feel like, because so many of these other spaces and, and really the kind of um, more rigorous, I would say, devotional spaces are oftentimes very much influenced by India, South Asia, Indian Hindu people and things. Whereas I found in these spaces, um, they were much, much more kind of holdouts of white homogeneity than I thought that they would be. And their engagement with India and Hinduism um, was much more about texts and things and not so much about people and culture. Mm-hmm. So that was that was quite striking to me and that's what the book kind of came to be.
2: Uh, Amanda, the, you focused on festivals. I've been to some of them. I've never been to Burning Man, but I've been to Bhakti Fest and a few of the other uh, bhakti-oriented ones, uh, and in my memory, you're, you're quite right. It's not 100% white, but it's predominantly white. How do you account for that? Is it the, something about the the nature of these festivals and their locations, uh, the kind of uh, outreach they do? Uh, what what? Why is it? So, uh, uh, why is there not more diversity?
1: I think that's um, a big question, but I do try to, like, that's the point of the book, right? (laughs) So I try to take a hand at it. Um, I think there's both uh, attraction and detraction factors that are happening, so, The attraction factors, which is why are white people going, right, why are they attracted to these spaces? I think is in part because of this kind of performative and playful exploration of other religious fields of other religious cultures that happens there. And that's what I talk about through the term religious exoticism of, and that's in the the title of the book, right? The Religious Exoticism of Transformational Festivals. And the ways in which that kind of exploration turns into a form of um, play that is exploratory and um, liberating, but is also a bit possessive and um, experiential, but really focused on the individual's experience and much less on any kind of allegiance or solidarity or demand for um partnership with the community that has produced that whatever it is whether it's a tibetan singing bowl or a crystal skull or a yoga class or a vedic ritual um and that becomes i think a perpetuating factor so when those people are in those fields occupying that space of representation and possession, I think it also serves as a deterrent to people who look at those fields and say that field is not for me. Um, So I think in some sense, there's an idea of like whiteness. I use Arun Saldana's work on the viscosity or the stickiness of whiteness, like it, it becomes a thick barrier for others. So when they see that all together, people of color might look at that festival and say, that's not something I wanna engage in, or that's not a space for me. Or they may even have a critique, like they are misrepresenting my culture or where are the South Asians? Or why why am I not represented in that space, even though they're performing practices that are from my heritage? Um, So that's the main prong that I think through. Now, of course, there's other economic factors like leisure time. The idea of health inequities, right? If yoga is about health, uh, there are, as we've seen so so desperately during COVID, um, health inequities are extraordinarily real in our country. And of course, not everyone feels they have access to good health care, the ability to um, spend time on wellness and self-care, which has become such a buzzword as well, right? Um, I get a little bit concerned about that last economic argument though, because it is kind of an assumption that people of color don't have the means or the self-interest in caring for themselves to attend, which is certainly not the case, right? We have all kinds of um, events and things that people of color spend money on and big money on in this country that are not these festivals. So the kind of interesting question is to wonder, why not here and why somewhere else?
2: If I may, it's almost, you could argue the reverse because at least the, some of the festivals I've been to, the accommodations are pretty funky. <laughs> and you have to be young and adventurous, you know, really to want to go spend three, four days in, you know, like Bhakti Fest in the in the desert heat and funky accommodations. And, uh, Maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah. yeah I you, think there's you
1: know, a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just go gonna say, I think there's also a history of, um, you know, camping and environmentalism and yeah. nature. Like if you look at the statistics on the national parks, they are not great either, even in a state like mm-hmm. California, uh, that is so highly diverse. So I think that has everything to do with it. Yeah.
0: It's, <laughs> it's fascinating what you're bringing out. And again, i gonna mention to our listeners, The title of the book, White Utopias, Um, even within um, Christianity in America, uh, you go from church to church. There's very very little uh, racial diversity, even though uh, probably a a very large percentage of African-Americans would uh, categorize themselves as being Christian. They're not found in the same churches generally as white Christians. So there's that discrimination there or not discrimination necessarily, but that aversion, uh, there's there's a reason. And, and now you could say, what, what, maybe because it goes by neighborhood to neighborhood, uh, but I think when uh, an environment is predominantly white, uh, there might be uh, not as attractive. Just like if, a, if, if, if an environment is predominantly African-American or something, maybe white people won't venture into it as much. So uh, these are barriers that would be, you think at this point, in the evolution of our culture uh, would have been done away with, but it do- that doesn't seem to be happening. And for me, uh, having grown up in a civil rights movement, it's very frustrating and uh, disappointing that that we exist as we exist with that uh, separateness. But uh, uh, I think your book goes into it may- and very thought-provoking and has made me think about it a lot more, but uh, answers I don't have. But uh, certainly, something I, I'd, I'd like to think about more and also discuss with people from different ethnic and racial backgrounds. And, and because I think ultimately, uh, spirituality, whether it's in the, uh, under the umbrella of religion or uh, spiritual, but not religious and all, should be bringing various groups together and not being uh, symbols of why and how they're apart.
1: Yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that. I always um, remember, since we just passed Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, commemoration and birthday, that um, uh, he said 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated right. hour in America, Right. that right. famous quote. Right. And it is true that uh, even today that the, the statistics on what we might call multi-ethnic congregations are quite low. Um, There's some movement happening there in the megachurch world, I think. Some of those are becoming much more um, multi-ethnic, places like um, Harvest or Calvary, right? Those kinds of um, big churches that bring in tens of thousands of people on a Sunday. Um, But yeah, also, it's not only that these spaces were white only, um, but it was kind of that the whole purpose of some of these spaces was to explore the practice of non-white religious traditions. Right. And so, you know, I thought that was so strange, honestly, at the beginning, <laughs> yeah. that was kind of the beginning of my You would
0: have never it. guessed that would have happened.
1: Right. Of, yeah. If you really wanted to learn about uh, any Asian religion or any indigenous religion or practice or cultural form, it seems like the people of that tradition would be really important to doing so.
2: Um, and I'm sure you know most of the people who go to places like Bhakti Fest uh, would be happy to see more of those people, but you know, they're just showing up. Which, yeah. brings, which brings me to another uh, question. Uh, it, it, in your experience, um, it's, it seems to me that one of the uh, downsides or um, challenges of the spiritual but not religious, this whole spiritual independence uh, phenomenon is, uh, by definition, practically, an absence of community. So do you see attendance at these festivals as some, you know, at least in part... Uh, an attempt to, you know, have a spiritual community, even on a temporary basis, and and the, a corollary uh, or a, a, an associated question would be, um, when I've gone to them, it's hard for me to distinguish how many of the people there are really serious about their spiritual lives and and wanting to, you know, go deep, and how many are there, you know, to have a good time and you know meet their soulmate or, you know, whatever. Do you have a sense of those things?
1: Yeah, you have uh, so many great questions in there. I wanna to try to remember <laughs> them all. Um, mm-hmm. As far as, let me take the last to the first and you'll help me remind me of if, if I miss one of them, but how many people are serious? I think it depends on the festival mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. completely. And there's a wide diversity of festivals that I talk mm-hmm. about. In the, in the book. And of course we just had an article that came out yesterday, Burning Man again reiterating that it is not a festival. So it likes to imagine itself as not a festival, as a city and really to dissociate from that category, um, especially as festivals become big money-making kind of red solo cup events with a huge mm-hmm. environmental impact. They want nothing to do with that genre. Um, I found Wanderlust is oftentimes kind of scoffed aside as the indulgent of the super rich, but the yoga was the hardest at Wanderlust festivals, the most rigorous, the most, um, in some ways, South Asian Sanskrit uh, practice connected of all Mm. the festivals, which was kind of interesting to me. Also, the most yoga teachers and most yoga aficionados were at the Wanderlust festivals. And, Mm. you know, maybe they teach at, athletic oriented studios, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think a lot of them were very much into furthering their practice and really serious about it. So kind of bucking that assumption a little bit. Um, and similarly with, I think, Bhakti and Shakti Festas, you get a lot of devotees. Yeah. A lot of people who have a really serious and, you know, devoted religious practice, even if it's amalgamated between Hinduism, Buddhism, and some kind of generalizable native something that they've put together for themselves. They're serious about what they're doing. Um, And then, of course, there were people who were um, even more so who would, you know, maybe been raised as a Hare Krishna, been raised in TM, been raised in Yogananda, Self-Realization Fellowship. Um, That contingency is very much there in that field. Um, So it's kind of hard to say. Tell me one more. Give I me asked one more.
2: about um, the uh, attempt to sort of build uh,
1: Oh, community. community. Yeah, I mean, that's the most common word uh, issued in these spaces. I think that is no. absolutely the reason why people um, are putting on these events at all, is to bring people together and to try to foster some sense of community. Um, I think it's largely successful. People do build friendships and relationships and finding their soulmate. There's nothing wrong with that at these no. kind of events. Um, but I think it does show that, you know, maybe the, the literary turn in the new age community that happened somewhere around 1980s, where people, or maybe even earlier with uh, Be Here Now, when people thought, I don't need to go to India. I don't need to find a guru. I can just read a book um that made it really individualistic i mean it made it kind of um protestant reminiscent as well right that Mm -hmm. you're going to find the answers in a book um but it meant that a lot of people were spiritually seeking on their own with with Mm -hmm. a library um and that also kind of has impacted demographics and how this whole um kind of turn toward the East or toward the exotic or toward the spiritual has proceeded in the last 40 or 50 years, I think.
0: I'm, cu- <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm curious, you teach uh, religious studies at University of California at Riverside. Your classes, how ethnically, how racially diverse are they? And, and does it reflect the, the diversity of the uh, undergraduate population overall? Or, or do you find your classes are more white or less white uh, than the overall population? of the campus?
1: That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. So at UCR, this is one of the things that actually made me start to think about it. I talk about that a little bit in the acknowledgements that UCR is, I think, um, 80% non-white. And I found that my kind of assumptions when I came on as faculty in 2011 were that People thought that India was cool and they thought that new age stuff was cool. And my classes would fill in a heartbeat the way they had at other places that I had taught. And it kind of wasn't the case. My students took my classes because they needed the credits, but they came in with this kind of like, why should I care about this attitude or even a... Um, a, a grumpy attitude, like <laughs> this is for privileged white folks, and it has nothing to do with my mm-hmm. life. And you know, I I don't, I'm not necessarily all that interested in it. Or you have to kind of dispel that um, assumption in my mind before you can show me why yoga is cool and interesting, and not just something that's for other people and not my community. So that was one of the kind of OGS moments I would say where I like, <laughs> where I thought to myself, okay, I really need to reevaluate my assumptions about my field um, and to look at the demographics and to think more carefully about why this is actually a point of aversion instead of attraction for some of my uh, students.
2: Very interesting. Um, the, how, can I, how can I phrase this? Um, the term you use, um, religious exoticism, um, for people uh, who haven't heard that term, can you define it and is it usually used as a kind of pejorative or is it just a neutral term?
1: Well, I can certainly define it and I'll do that part first. And I think the pejorative question is an interesting question. Um, so exoticism uh, comes from a a kind of long history. In fact, some of the terms like exoticism and appropriation, we think that they're kind of like pop in vogue terms right now, but they have a long history in the colonial archive of appropriating wealth and culture and resources in um, the colonial period, as well as the exoticism that was evident in early travel logs, you know, 15th century, 16th century, as soon as we had kind of European Uh, exploration and dominance outside of Europe. So the terms are old. Exoticism essentially refers to the attraction to the other, to alterity, but not necessarily with a lot of um, substantive knowledge or relationship with the other. So you can be attracted to something simply because it's other. And it's used oftentimes in thinking through Orientalism But I I didn't wanna use the term Orientalism because here we have attraction to alterity when it's not of the Orient, right? When it's of indigenous cultures or Mm -hmm. simply not this, right? Not this kind of hyper Western capitalist modernity that we're in, something else. So it could be uh, primitive tool making, right? It's an exoticization of, okay, I'm dissatisfied with whatever my current kind of locus is. So I'm gonna look elsewhere to the other and romanticize that, right, and find that to be the solution to the problem of the present. So that's where the the definitional part of the term is, and I don't think that it's an insult and necessarily, but I don't think that um, it is something to aspire to. About that, I think that right. we have to be very careful because in the in the activity of exoticism, you lose the people you lose the human, you lose the relationship um, that would actually form a kind of substantive partnership of, of exchange. Um, and so in contrast to exoticism, I think through a little bit with uh, Leela Gandhi and her work on um, the politics of friendship, like what would it actually mean instead of just reading a book about yoga and and um, you know adopting a, a Hindu ritual to make friends to develop a relationship with the human aspect of those cultures, and I think what you would find is that it would it would immediately um, diversify the experience, right? Because you would have when you're interacting with humans, you have lots of different perspectives and it would poke holes in the exoticist fantasy. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to say something like, oh, India is so spiritual <laughs> when, you're, when you're talking to a computer programmer.
2: Saying, <laughs> or you go to India. Or you go to India.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I didn't know it, yeah. <laughs>
1: so once you build a human relationship, it, it thwarts the kind of um, stereotyping Mm-hmm. that exoticism allows mm-hmm. um, and even enables.
0: I, I have uh, one final question and then I'll turn it over to Phil. In writing your book and researching for your book, White Utopias, uh, did uh, you come across anything that, or e- even after writing it, where you thought, okay, this is my this is where I'm going with my next book?
1: I feel like there was a lot of, there was so much that I could have talked about, that I didn't have right. time to talk about. And I tried to solve that in some sense with the little interludes. I put four or five interludes that are three or four pages of just like, here's my thought on this. <laughs> and I don't have a chance to think about it for the entire book. Um, one of those recently, I'm turning into an article, one on beauty. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. very hilarious and and almost, you know, humbling uh, interlude about me getting a sty, you know like an eye infection on the way to a New Zealand uh, yoga festival a wanderlust in New Zealand and Mm. that was mortifying and I realized how attached I was to my own beauty image and my own ego and now I was interviewing all these beautiful yogis with their cascading tresses looking like they just (laughs) came out of a commercial and I felt gross and so it really helped me to think about how we are relating yoga and beauty and morality and goodness all together. Um, so I'm working on an article that came out of that. Um, and there's some other things that I think are pieces of, of new work that I will pick up in the future, but, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. Great.
2: So as long as we're on the future, one quick uh, question as a preview for what I hope will be your next visit with us. Um, Your bio says you're working on a study of the media representation of gurus. Tell us quickly what what you're up to with that.
1: So this is part of a a large project that um, I'm the principal investigator for, which is a large uh, grant that we received to study religion and sexual abuse. And this is across all religious traditions. Um, and we have a partnership of about 15 different scholars. We have a conference coming up at UC Riverside, which is very exciting
2: oh.
1: um, uh, March 4th through 6th. Then you can check out our website at uh, religionandsexualabuseproject.org. And then I can throw that in the chat at some point. Um, but My role in that is about media representations of gurus. I mean, we know that so many gurus are involved in scandal. So many gurus are dragged through the media for scandal, for nefarious behavior of all different kinds. Um, And so I'm trying to understand why that is and how long that's been happening for. And I think it's quite a bit longer than we think. We tend to think of this as like, oh, dystopian modernity, um, actually. No, I can, I can
2: show you articles from over a hundred years ago.
1: Yeah, exactly. And even further, if you go into the role of the yogi, the role of the yeah, fakir, yeah. the role of the sannyasi in the colonial archive was also kind of a liminal and dangerous sexualized figure. So I'm, I'm, ambitiously thinking through a long project on representation um, and we'll see how far I get with that. But I'm gonna be um, at the British Library in London on sabbatical next year, which I'm very excited about. And I'll be able to dive deep and pay attention.
2: Great, well, Amanda, thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to uh, what you come up with in that area because I've had to do my own research on that. There's the book, a fabulous cover. White yeah, and Christian. it's a
0: well-researched book. It's very thought-provoking, um, and uh, it's not a quick read because I read it quickly last night. But <laughs> now I'll go back and read it uh, more, more uh, in a slower fashion. And uh, and it, but, but for me, it was. It, there's so many things in that book that uh, stirred my interest and thoughts, uh, and I had uh, more questions about. So I highly recommend it, and uh, great work.
2: And I'll say from uh, the professional writer uh, perspective that uh, not every academic writes for university press as uh, well as Amanda does. So you can read this without too much struggle.
1: (laughs) I try to be readable. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's a high compliment indeed.
2: (laughs) Thanks for being with us, Amanda. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it.